0: As practicing Stoics, one of the most important concepts we must understand and practices that we must employ is the discipline of desire. The discipline of desire answers a profoundly important question in Stoicism. What should we desire in life? What should we pursue? The Stoic's answer is quite simple. We should desire and pursue one thing, and that is an excellent character, otherwise known as virtue. Alternatively, We should be repulsed by or avoid one thing, and that is a bad moral character, vice. Thus, the Stoics famously argued that virtue is the only good, and its attainment is the path to happiness. In Stoicism, virtue is not the primary good, among many others. It is the only good. Virtue is the only thing worth desiring and pursuing, according to the Stoics. Why? Because virtue is the only thing that has true value. Remember that value scale from episode 6? On one side of the scale, we placed the virtues, wisdom, courage, justice, and moderation. That side of the scale dipped all the way down, as you remember, indicating the immense value of those items. Now, no matter how many externals we placed on the other side of that scale, it didn't budge. And the reason for that is that those externals don't have any value when they're weighed against the value of virtue. Those externals do have value, and I will get to that later. However, their value is of a different kind, and we are not to pursue it for its own sake or pursue them for their own sake. So how do we pursue virtue? By desiring only that over which we have complete control. That which is completely up to us. And what is that? Our sense and value judgments about the things and events in nature and our impulse to act. The Stoics claim that a person who lives according to that simple truth will develop an excellent moral character and experience well-being. Yet today, everywhere we look, we see very little well-being. Instead, what we see is a tremendous amount of psychological distress and anguish. This is not new. Discontent, disharmony, and unhappiness have been a perennial feature of human existence, as recorded in our literature and historical record. But why? Why is there so much unhappiness and misery amongst humans when we have made so much progress toward the things we have historically sought, such as good health, material comfort, political fairness, etc.? Progress was supposed to bring us happiness. New technology, medical innovation, political equality, etc. were supposed to bring about human well being. Yet, at the beginning of the 21st century, we appear to be just as miserable as the ancients were. Why? We share the same human pathology. We desire and spend our lives pursuing that which is not within our complete control. Health, wealth, reputation, status, etc. Meanwhile, we neglect to focus our attention on that which we do control, our value judgments, and our impulses to act. The result is exactly what Epictetus warned us about in Enchiridion I we are hindered, we lament, we have troubled minds, and we blame the gods and our fellow humans for our misery. So what is the answer to this perennial human pathology? Again, it's quite simple. However, it's not an answer that most people, past or present, are willing to accept. The answer is to stop desiring what is not within our complete control and begin pursuing only that which is within our complete control, namely virtue. Unfortunately, this is the opposite of what we've been taught from childhood, and particularly in the West. Modern advertising specialists manipulate our innate desires by bombarding us with images and value judgments. Impressions designed with the specific intent of arousing our natural impulses for survival to levels that far exceed anything that's necessary for human well-being. These advertisements often redefine human well-being in terms of material possessions, sex appeal, social status, power, etc. Now, am I saying that Stoics have to abandon all interest in all externals, such as health, money, material possessions? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all, and neither did the ancient Stoics. While the Stoics certainly did practice asceticism as an essential part of their training regimen, and they did promote a simpler way of life that excluded many luxuries, they did not teach complete abandonment of externals as a part of the Stoic path. The Stoic way of life is neither that of the pleasure-seeking Epicurean, nor is it the ascetic life of the Cynic. So what does it mean to desire something, and how do we attain any external, like education, a job, a home, a family, etc., without desiring them? Unfortunately, the complete answer to that question will not come until the next episode, because it's necessary for me to cover some theoretical groundwork before we can dive into the actual practice of the discipline of desire. In this episode, I'm going to cover that theoretical foundation. Epictetus succinctly defines that foundation in Discourses 112, which reads, True education consists precisely in this, in learning to wish that everything should come about just as it does, and how do things come about? As the one who ordains them has ordained. It is with this order of things in mind that we should approach our education, and not so as to change the existing order of things for that has not been permitted to us, nor would it be better that it should be, but rather things around us being as they are, and as their nature dictates, so that we, for our part, may keep our will in harmony with whatever comes to pass. So that is where our Stoic education must begin. It begins with an acceptance that events happen the way that they do for a reason, and that entails trust in the providential nature of the cosmos. Epictetus pointed to his predecessors in the Stoa when he taught his students the first thing that needs to be learned is the following, that there is a God and a God who exercises providential care for the cosmos. Discourses 2.14.11. This is what the renowned Stoic scholar Anthony Long calls the theonomic foundation in his brilliant analysis of Epictetus's teaching. That theonomic foundation is a necessary part of the discipline of desire, which has the power to transform our lives into one lived in agreement with nature. However, to practice this discipline of desire, we must understand the stoic concepts of human nature and cosmic nature and appreciate the relationship between them. Ultimately, the discipline of desire involves bringing our human will into agreement with cosmic nature. In this state of agreement, we live every present moment desiring and loving what actually happens rather than what we want to happen. And as we will see, there is a subtle yet immensely important distinction between resigning ourselves to the necessity of fate and learning to love what fate brings into our lives. The discipline of desire will enable us to move beyond that character of the Stoic, who grins and bears the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and toward the excellence of spirit, articulated by Marcus Aurelius when he wrote, Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. In that passage, Marcus beautifully articulates the Stoic attitude towards things and events that occur in nature. With that attitude in mind, let's consider human nature and cosmic nature from a Stoic perspective the Stoics considered humans to be rational beings who are different from animals by virtue of our ability to choose our values based upon reasoned assent rather than instinct alone. Some human desires, appetites and instinctive responses, represent evolutionary adaptations handed down to us from a long lineage of ancestors who survived to pass their genes on to us. Some of these are easily observable in newborns who have an innate desire for food and an aversion to discomfort. An infant does not acquire a desire for food or learn an aversion to discomfort. He feels the pangs of hunger and senses discomfort and instinctively cries out for someone to help because he's incapable of helping himself. We share this instinct to seek pleasure and avoid pain with our animal ancestors. Our natural desires for caloric dense foods, sexual intercourse, and social hierarchy appear to be an evolutionary inheritance from our primate ancestors. Those instincts promoted our survival as a species. Unfortunately, these natural desires, when coupled with our human creativity and imagination, can morph into desires for things that are ultimately detrimental to our physical and psychological well-being. They can quickly become uncontrollable passions, obsessions, compulsions, or addictions. As I noted earlier, modern advertising specialists exploit our innate human desires so that they can sell us things, That we don't necessarily need and that frequently do us harm. To combat this, the Stoics sought to understand human nature and to constrain human desires within reasonable boundaries so they do not become self destructive. This resulted in the Stoic motto live in agreement with nature. The Stoics suggested that we should desire what is natural for us as rational beings. And what is that? Again, it is that over which we have complete control, that which is up to us desire for anything other than what is up to us leads to distress, and that is a foundational truth in Stoicism. That is why it is critical for us to understand our human nature and its relationship to human nature. As Anthony Long points out, nature has equipped us to, quote, become reflective, active, and confident contributors to every situation we encounter, end quote. However, he further notes that we must understand two truths before we can assume this confident attitude toward all things and events in nature. First, we must accept that everything that falls outside of our own mentality and character is not our business, but belongs to other parts of the cosmic plan. Second, we must understand that while we have good reason to desire anything that accords with our natures as rational animals, and to take pleasure in such things, we must nonetheless accept that desires and emotions pertaining to things outside of our control, are not compatible with our natures or with the cosmic plan. As Epictetus repeatedly makes clear in the Discourses and the Enchiridion, the pursuit of things that are not up to us leads to psychological angst and human conflict. Even a cursory review of human history reveals that most interpersonal conflict and war are the result of desires for things things outside our control, wealth, fame, honor, power, which are not necessary for our well-being. A great deal of human despair and tragedy is created when we allow the innate animalistic impulses of our human nature to run amok, unconstrained by any rational system of values which promotes universal well-being and justice. As Epictetus poignantly asks, for what else is tragedy than the portrayal in tragic verse of the sufferings of men who have attached high value to external things? Discourses 1.4.26. Our will is the mechanism by which we can control our desires, and the discipline of desire provides the tools to conform our human will to cosmic nature. Our human will is the mechanism by which we control our desires, and the discipline of desire provides us with the tools that help us conform our human will to cosmic nature. Now, as Pierre Haydeau points out, the early Stoics delineated only two functions within our guiding principle, ascent and active impulse. While later, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius broke the active impulse, the human will, down further into two distinct functions, and thus created a third function of the guiding principle that they refer to as desire. And that's what this discipline is talking about. This leaves us with the following sequence each time we are presented with an impression and its associated value judgment. The sequence is assent, desire, impulse. Hedo suggests that the three stoic disciplines' assent, desire, and action correspond to those three functions of the will. As I noted in the previous episodes on assent, impressions are not subject to any discipline because we cannot control what impressions we are presented with. We become responsible for impressions and any attached value judgments only after those impressions have been presented to our rational faculty. We can now begin to see the interrelated nature of assent, desire, and the impulse to act. I'm going to address the impulse to act in future episodes. However, it's important now to recognize why our good intentions so often fall short of their aim. We typically attempt to intervene in the impression, assent, desire, Impulse chain in that last stage, that stage of the impulse to act. The impression of an attractive mate, a piece of chocolate cake, the prestige of the corner office, a sports car, etc., is presented to our rational faculty along with a value judgment that tells us that is good. We assent to that impression and then we trigger a desire for that lover, cake, job, car, etc. We might even begin to fantasize. About the object of our desire by imagining the caresses of the lover, the taste of the cake, the respect and power associated with the job, and the pride of driving that car past envious onlookers. Soon, that is good becomes, I want that. That is a desire, and it invokes our will to act, it invokes our impulse. As the Stoics point out, this process creates a desire for something beyond our control. And when we fail to attain the object of that desire, we experience psychological distress, otherwise known as pathos. The attraction of these desires and their power to overcome our will is poignantly expressed by Heraclitus in fragment 85, which reads, It is hard to fight against passion, for whatever it wants, it buys at the expense of soul. The discipline of desire helps us to stop that train of passion before it leaves the station and builds up a full head of steam. At that point, we're not going to be able to stop it. And that is why Epictetus taught that controlling our passions through the discipline of desire is the most urgent of the three disciplines. In Discourses 3.2.3, we read, Desire is what brings about disturbances, confusions, misfortunes, and calamities, and causes sorrow, lamentation, and envy making people envious and jealous, and the result that we become incapable of listening to reason. Unlike Platonists, the Stoics do not divide the psyche of the human into rational and irrational parts locked in a perpetual battle for control. Platonists envision a battle between the wild beast, the passions, and the rational trainer or driver who is attempting to control that beast from the outside. The Stoics, on the other hand, don't believe that we have an irrational beast in us as a part of our human nature. Instead, when they witness irrationality, they see a rational creature out of touch with its true nature, a human acting like an animal. The Stoics believe the solution is to bring our guiding principle into agreement with nature so that we can perceive the truth about who we really are and live as excellent humans in agreement with cosmic nature. Therefore, the Stoics wisely realize that our battle with wrong desires begins with assent to things and events in nature. If we judge externals, things that are not completely up to us, as either good or bad, we open the door to desires and aversions that will easily overwhelm our will and bring about the warning of Unchiridion One. That's sufficient for now for human nature, but what about cosmic nature? For the Stoics, the cosmos, which they frequently refer to as simply nature, is a rational, and divine organism. The Stoics, in fact, built their ethical system and their prescriptions for achieving excellence and a good flow in life around that concept of a providential cosmos. And this conception of the cosmos was in stark contrast with the happenstance universe of the Epicureans. As I discussed in episode two of this podcast, I was an atheist when I began studying Stoicism, so I appreciate the problem the Stoic worldview presents to anyone holding on to the metaphysical assumptions that our universe and our human existence is a fortuitous accident. Nevertheless, I strongly encourage everyone to consider the Stoic conception of a providential cosmos with an open mind. As I point out in episode 2, the Stoic conception of God and providence is not what most people imagine. Moreover, while there is no promise of eternal salvation in Stoicism, the stakes for life here and now are quite high. Therefore, the Stoics created a philosophical system to help us handle the vicissitudes of life with equanimity. Now that is a big promise to fulfill, and it requires the application of the entire Stoic system. Stoic ethical theory and practice were not conceived to stand on their own. Even Julia Annas, a scholar is not an advocate for cosmic nature within Stoicism, acknowledges that becoming a good Stoic requires more, however, than mastering the ethical part. Stoic philosophy consists of all three parts, strongly unified into a whole, a point indicated in two of our major sources for the ethical part of Stoicism, end quote. One simply cannot read the writings of Seneca, the discourses of Epictetus, and the meditations of Marcus Aurelius without being confronted by the centrality of cosmic nature in Stoicism. As John Cooper suggests, the relationship between human nature and cosmic nature in Stoicism is essential to understanding their counterintuitive position, that everything else besides fully rational and virtuous action has no value. He argues, one cannot begin to understand the reasons for this unless one takes into account, in conceiving the nature that we are to live in agreement with, what Chrysippus says about the relationship that holds between our natures as human beings and the single nature of the whole world. The ancient Stoics looked at all of the evidence. The rationality in the cosmos, the order within the cosmos, the existence of life, the existence of human beings, and the remarkable nature of our own consciousness. And considering all of those factors, they came to the conclusion that there must be some creative force within the cosmos, beyond our human senses. There must be some kind of creative force that brought all of this about. This creative force was the creative fire, or logos, and the Stoics considered it divine. However, unlike the transcendent God of many religions, the creative fire of the Stoics does not act upon nature from afar, or from the outside. It acts upon nature from within. So this creative fire is an inseparable part of everything that exists. The Stoics referred to this creative fire as active principle, pneuma, logos, nature, and God interchangeably. It is the rational, life-inspiring force that exists as part of all matter. The Stoics argued against the serendipitous chance universe of the Epicureans and for a rational and providentially ordered cosmos because they understood that worldviews make a difference in human psychology and in human behavior. Providence or atoms? That is the question that Marcus Aurelius asks himself repeatedly in his meditations. Is our universe ordered by rational providence or the result of random chance collisions and combinations of mere matter? When it comes to the nature of the cosmos, most Western philosophers fall into two broadly defined camps—theism or reductive materialism. They either argue that the universe is the creation of an omnipotent god or the result of chance collisions and combinations of matter devoid of any teleology, any goal-directedness. The Stoics disagreed with both of these metaphysical assumptions about the nature of the cosmos. The middle position of the ancient Stoics postulates a philosophical god who is immanent rather than transcendent, and arrived at via reason rather than revelation. The Stoics relied on their rational faculty to accurately discern truth from their systematic observations about human nature and nature as a whole, and they concluded that there must be a rational guiding force within nature. They were deeply religious in a personal rather than public sense, and they saw sacredness and order within the cosmos. And as a result, the Stoics viewed nature as benevolent and conducive to human life. Therefore, death, disease, natural disasters are not considered punishments from an angry God. They are simply the natural unfolding of events within a web of causes, most of which are outside of our control. Stoics accept that the cosmos is as it should be, and they face challenging events as opportunities to develop their human excellence or virtue, rather than considering them as harmful. This is neither resignation nor retreat from the realities of human existence. On the contrary, Stoics strive to do all that we can to save lives, cure disease, and understand and mitigate natural and man-made disasters. Then, when death, disease, and disaster comes, as it naturally and inevitably will. We accept them, not as evil adversaries of our goals and desires, but as natural events outside of our control. We wish for good health, loving relationships, meaningful work, etc., without irrationally desiring them. The Stoic learns to love what happens in their life, because doing so allows them to grow and prosper in virtue. As Seneca wrote, those who are good must not flinch at hardships and difficulties and must not level complaints against fate. But whatever happens, they must find the good in it, should turn it to good. It is not what you face that counts, but how you face it. On Providence 2.4. Stoics seek to understand nature and to live in congruence or in agreement with her laws, rather than seeking to escape her domain physically, psychologically, or spiritually. Living in agreement with nature is the principal theme of Stoicism, and it can only be accomplished when our human nature is in agreement with cosmic nature, when our will is one with the will of the cosmos. When a Stoic accepts the divine will of nature, providence, and disciplines themselves to be in agreement with it, they are not surrendering to a greater will than theirs to avoid eternal damnation. They are simply assenting to the unfolding events outside of their control. They are trusting in a providential cosmos. By doing so, the Stoic learns to love the unfolding events of nature because they realize they are a part of it. They are one with it. Marcus Aurelius describes agreement with nature as the goal of philosophy. In Meditations 5.9, he wrote, "...philosophy wishes nothing other than what nature wishes, whereas..." you were wishing for something else which is not in accordance with nature. Now what could be more delightful than to follow nature? And is it not on account of such delight that vulgar pleasures seduce us? Well, see whether elevation of mind, freedom, simplicity, goodness of heart, and piety afford you greater delight, for what is more delightful than wisdom itself? End quote. The discipline of desire enables us to avoid the pathos that comes from those irrational longings for apparent pleasures and irrational aversions to perceived evils. This discipline does not and cannot make complete sense apart from the Stoic worldview that it was built around, apart from the Stoic conception of a divine and providential cosmos. Ascent to a providential cosmos is essential to evoking the confidence and psychological consolation the Stoics relied on for a good flow in life. It is essential to create that stoic attitude so beautifully expressed by Marcus when he writes, Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Meditations 423 With these theoretical conceptions of human nature and cosmic nature in mind, we will look at the practice of the discipline of desire in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you are interested in this ancient practice of Stoicism, you will find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you are interested in a social media environment where this form of Stoicism is discussed, Please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on the platform where you listen to this podcast. That tells others this podcast is worth listening to and thereby introduces more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you have feedback or a great podcast idea for me, send me an email at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at Stoicism.com. Until next time... I hope you will continue exploring traditional Stoicism, where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.